Well, they did a fair job this morning, didn't they? (laughs) Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he left the Great Commission to the church, to us. And essentially what the Great Commission says is to go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, teach them whatever I have commanded you. And as we return to Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, we see that Paul did exactly that. In the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul as the evangelist. He is making disciples. And then in chapter number 2, he is the discipler telling us what disciples are supposed to be. And that's where we have come today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children." Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, our working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now then in this passage of scripture, Paul is giving to us three roles for a mature believer. If one is mature in the faith, if one is going to be mature in the faith, then Paul says that this should demonstrate or it should reflect that person. Now we see the first in verse number four. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, the word entrusted is a reference to stewardship. But what is stewardship? We, we talk about stewardship. It is a, a word that is used oftentimes in the church. But what is stewardship? Well, first of all, it is not ownership. A steward is not the owner. You recall the story in the Bible about Joseph and how he was sold into slavery by his brothers. After that, he then became the steward of Potiphar. And the Bible says in Genesis 39, 6... So he, speaking of Potiphar, left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So the Bible says then that Joseph became a steward 
of that that belonged to Potiphar. It wasn't Joseph's. He was the steward and it remained Potiphar's. As pastors, we have to be reminded sometimes that we are stewards. In Titus chapter 1 verse 7, the Bible says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. So the scripture says then that the pastor is the steward of the gospel. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. All right. So the Bible says then, as the, the pastor then is a steward of the gospel. What does that mean? It means he is not the owner of the gospel. I'm the benefactor of the gospel, but I'm not the owner of the gospel. God is the owner of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? That means then that I have no right to change the gospel. You see, there are those sometimes who think because the gospel is not politically correct or because the gospel is offensive to some, then I am supposed to adjust the gospel so that it is more palatable, but it's not mine. It is not mine. I am simply a steward of the gospel. S.M. Lockridge pastored a church in San Diego, favorite pastor, uh, preacher that I enjoyed hearing. And uh, Dr. Lockridge once was speaking to some pastors and he said, you need to know what your job is. He said, you are the paper boy. That's all you are. He said, you don't write it. You don't edit it. You just throw it. All you are to do is to put the gospel on the porch. Don't put it up on the roof. Nobody's going to get up there and get it. And don't put it under the porch. No one's going to crawl down there and get it. He said, you are the paper boy. So put the gospel on the porch. That's all. So the Bible says then, as a pastor, I am a steward of the gospel. I don't own it. It belongs to God. The same thing is true with the possessions that we have. We are stewards of the possessions that God has given to us. And that's what Mr. Weaver was talking about earlier. God has entrusted certain things to us. We're just stewards of them. They are not ours. We are a steward. So a steward then is not the owner but the manager. The steward is the manager of that that has been entrusted to him or to her. So I am a manager then of that that God has allowed me to exercise stewardship over. Tom Elliff is the president of the International Mission Board. I've known Tom for 35 years or so, but I, I remember when that he taught this message that we are stewards, that we are managers of that that belongs to God. And he taught, taught that to his children. When his daughter was just a child, she said to him one day, and Tom told me this, she said to him one day, Dad, now according to what you say, this car we drive is not really ours, it belongs to God. Is that right? And he said, that's right, sugar. She said, well, then don't you think we ought to keep God's car cleaner than we do? <laughs> See, that's what it means. We are managers of that that belongs to God. And as a steward, then I am going to give an account 
to the one who is the owner. Jesus told the parable of the unrighteous steward who squandered his trust. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 2, he said, And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship. Do you realize that as a steward that we are simply managers of something that belongs to someone else and that I am accountable to the one who is the owner? For instance, if you have a position of leadership, you are a steward of that position and you will give an account. But let me break that down for some others. What about as a parent? Parents, you don't own those kids. Now, you think you do until they become 12, 13 years old and all of a sudden you realize you don't own those kids. Actually, they belong to the Lord. But you are responsible for your stewardship as a parent. Now, what we do oftentimes is to take our children to school and we say to the teachers there, educate them. And then we bring them to church and we say to the people there, make them good. But the fact is you are responsible. You see, they are your stewardship. You are the one who is accountable for your children. So what Paul is saying to us here, if we are mature in the faith, understand that we are stewards, we are managers, we are not the owner. And then he gives to us three qualities that are necessary. And the first is courage. It takes courage to be a steward. Bud Robinson was an evangelist of years ago who prayed this prayer every morning. Oh, Lord, give me a backbone as big as a saw log and ribs like the sleepers under the church floor. Put iron shoes on my feet and galvanized breeches on my body. Give me a rhinoceros hide for skin and hang up a wagon load of determination in the gable end of my soul. Help me to sign the contract to fight the devil as long as I've got a tooth and then gum him until I die. We have to have courage to be God's steward. Why? Now, why do you need courage to be a steward? Because there is opposition. Look at verse number 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. There's opposition. Winston Churchill had spoken to an audience of 10,000 people. A friend of his said, Winston, aren't you impressed that 10,000 people came to hear you speak? He said, not really. A 100,000 would have come to see me hang. There is always opposition. And Paul encountered opposition in his commitment to the Lord. In fact, the opposition referred to here is from Acts chapter 16. And in the story there in Acts chapter 16, there was a slave girl possessed of a demon, but as a result of her demonic possession, she could tell fortunes. Now, she was telling fortunes and her owner was getting the money from the fortune telling. When Paul then cast the demon out of her, she could no longer tell fortunes. He lost his income as a result, he was upset. He had Paul beaten and also imprisoned. Ladies and gentlemen, if you stand for Christ, understanding that you are a steward of that that belongs to him, you are going to face opposition. 
Eddie Rickenbacker wrote, Courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. Paul says there is opposition, but in verse number one, he says, but we were not in vain. In other words, he is saying there was opposition, but I was effective. I was effective as a child of God. I was effective as a steward of that that belongs to God. It requires courage. Secondly, it requires commitment. Verse number four. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. You see, the temptation we all have is that we please men. That's always a temptation, is it not? We want to please people. That is the reason that we have all of the political correctness that we have today, because we want to please people. So we lie. You know, we we say a lot of things we know that is not the truth. We take a lot of positions we know that are not honest because we don't want to offend anyone. And so we are trying to please men because we, we want to keep the peace. We don't want to rock the boat. So don't do anything that would offend anybody because we don't want to rock the boat. But do you see what he said here? My purpose is not to please men my purpose is to please, please God. That's a mature believer. See, my purpose is not to please man. My purpose is to please God. That's what Paul said in Galatians 1.10. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. The third ingredient is integrity in verse number 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Integrity. Boy, that's about missing today, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. This is just a parenthesis here because I thought it was amusing, so I'm going to tell it to you. It doesn't have anything to do with the sermon, but but it sort of fits in there, and I'm going to tell you anyway. But Have you ever been asked to recommend someone who was not a person of integrity, and you knew that if you recommended that person that you were going to lose yours? What'd you do? Steve Malone tells how to do it without losing your integrity. He said, if the person is lazy, he said, in my opinion, you will be very fortunate to get this person to work for you. If the person is inept, he said, I recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. (laughs) Or if they don't get along with others, I am pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. (laughs) But integrity, that's one of the things that we have to have is integrity. So Paul says, as far as integrity is concerned, That my message is not of error. Did you see that in that verse? My message is not of error. In other words, when he preached about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he said, that's the truth. My message is not of error. He said, my motive is not of impurity. During Paul's time, there were philosophers who traveled around speaking, and they would manipulate people to give money to them. What the charge is about Paul here is that he's one of them. He is going about with a new message. 
but for the same purpose, to get you to give him money. That's the reason that Paul is saying, no, my message is not of impurity because my commitment is not to please man. My commitment is to please God. So Paul says, my, my message is not in error. My method is not of impurity. And my method is not of deceit. Warren Wiersbe wrote, salvation does not lie at the end of a clever argument or a subtle presentation. It is the result of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says that in the message that I deliver to you, it's not a flattery in verse number five. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Now, flattery can be a truth or a lie, but its purpose, is its design is to manipulate. We flatter to manipulate. He said, now, my message is not a flattery. He said, and, and, and I'm not motivated by greed. And then did you notice that he said, as you know, as you know, and God is witness. So Paul here is speaking about a mature Christian, someone who has come to know Jesus as Savior. And they are growing into maturity as a believer. And he says, first of all, they are people who understand that they are stewards. I'm not the owner. I am a manager of that that belongs to God. That's what he's saying. Then we see the second example in verse number 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Now, the steward is faithful. The mother is gentle. So he says, now, the mature believer is like a steward understanding that it belongs to God and I am the manager. He said, the mature believer is also gentle in dealing with others. Now, what are the characteristics of a mother? Well, last week I mentioned uh, sacrifice, that a mother sacrifices. She sacrifices her time. A mother is constantly taking the children to ball practice, to ballet, to wherever it is that she takes them. She's always running from place to place, not because she wants to, but because she's mother, sacrifices her time. She sacrifices her energy. About a week or two ago, I saw Courtney Atkinson. She she was walking down the, down the hall. She had kids hanging all over her. I mean, she, one on each leg, one and then I looked at her and I said, Courtney, how are you? She said, I am worn out. I thought, now that's a mother. I mean, most of you ladies who have children, you're worn out. And you don't get any help from your husband. I know that. But sacrifice, that, that's what mothers do. They sacrifice and, and then they're patient. Susanna Wesley was told by her husband, I marvel at your patience. You have told that child the same thing 20 times. Susanna said, had I spoken the matter only 19 times, I would have lost all my labor. Patience. A mother is patient. You know, it takes patience to raise children, doesn't it? I mean, it takes the patience to teach them to walk and to talk and potty train them and all those things that you have to do. Do you know that is not any different with spiritual babies, spiritual children? Sometimes I hear people say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm just aggravated at the church. They are so immature. Folks, I pray that our church never gets matured. I hope some of you have been saved for a while grow up. 
that you're mature. But if everybody is mature, it means there's no babies in the church. And uh, you ought to be seeing people saved, come into the kingdom of God and become a part of the church. But understand they're babies spiritually. And as a result of that, they're messy. I mean, they're going to mess things up because that's what babies do. But Paul is saying that, 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 we are, that the mature person is, is mature. I mean, it's patient. They're patient with people. And they nourish. A mother nourishes her child. But in order to nourish, you first of all have to be nourished. If you are nourished yourself, then you are able to nourish the children. When my dad died, my boss wrote me a letter because I was in a quandary as to what I should do because of my age. I was in college at that time. And he said, Wendell, continue your education because you're going to be a better son, a better brother if you minister from a position of strength rather than from a position of weakness. See, if you are nourished yourself, then you are able to nourish others. And then a mother protects in verse number 8. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. A mother protects. You know the story, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible about the two women who had a baby. One of the babies died and both of them claimed the living baby. So they brought the living baby to Solomon and said, whose baby is it? You make a decision because both of them were claiming the baby. And Solomon being the man of wisdom that he was, he said, why don't we just split the baby in half and I'll give half to one mother and half to the other. 1 Kings 3.26, Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king. For she was deeply stirred over her son and said, Oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Now whose baby was it? The one who was willing to give up the baby to protect the baby. Mothers protect their children. So Paul is saying that a, a mature believer is someone who is a steward. They understand that they are managers of that that belongs to God. A mature believer is gentle in dealing with others like a mother. And then the third example, verse number 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So now then Paul is speaking about a mature believer being like a father and he mentions four duties of a spiritual father. First of all, we see his work in verse number 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. The word labor that is used there literally means fatigue. Did you know it is hard work to do discipleship? to be a mature believer. If you're going to grow up in the Lord, folks, it, it requires some work. It takes work to be a deacon, a good deacon. It takes work to be a Sunday school teacher, a good Sunday school teacher. It takes work to be a choir and an orchestra, a good choir. It takes work. Why do we think that you people just get up there and it just automatically happens? It doesn't automatically happen. It requires work. And then Paul used the word hardships and he's referring to his ministry to the Ephesians. In Acts 20, he said, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. 
God's word. Like a father. And then we see his walk in verse number 10. You are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. The word devout means carefully fulfill the duties God gives to a person. The word uprightly is a reference to integrity. And the word blameless means not able to find fault in. He said they might bring accusations against me but they can't find fault in me. You see that was his walk. That's the way, that was his example. That's the way that he lived. And then we see his words in verse number 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Exhorting means to call to one side. It means to encourage. But then you notice that he also used the word encourage. So he said exhorting, to call to one side, it means to encourage. But then he used the word encouraging. When he uses the word encourages, encouraging, it speaks more, emphasizes the activity. So what Paul is saying is that I want you to feel better, so I exhort you. I want you to do better, so I encourage you. See, it's both of them. He said, I'm exhorting you, encouraging you, that you feel better. And he said, I'm encouraging you concerning the activity that you do better. And then the word imploring means testified to them. That was his personal witness. He was telling them what God had done in his life. And then we see the wisdom of Paul in verse number 12. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Chapter number one, Paul is speaking of evangelism. That people are being born into the kingdom of God. In chapter number two, he is talking about discipleship, the maturity of the believer. What does he say about them? A mature believer is someone who understands that they are stewards, they are not the owner, they are managers of whatever it is that God has entrusted to you and that you are going to give an account to God because he's the owner. Secondly, he says that a mature believer is gentle like a mother in dealing with other people. That we're patient with them. We're encouraging to them. Like a mother, gentle with other people. And then he said a mature believer is like a concerned father who models the behavior that is expected of others. Well, no wonder the church in Thessalonica prospered, and it did prosper. No wonder it prospered in spite of persecution and that they shared the gospel with others that they came to know Jesus. That's what I want for you. I want you to know the Lord, be saved, And grow up in Christ that you might reflect him. Our gracious Father, we come to you at a time of invitation. Asking, Holy Spirit, that you speak to hearts. That you apply the word of God to the heart. That people might be drawn to Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation.
And when the choir sings, if the Lord has spoken to your heart about committing your life to Christ, I hope you'll come and speak to one of the staff members to join our church. Our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our, our family. Stand with me, please, as we stand. The choir sings, you come, I'll greet you as you do.